I have titled my sermon for this morning simply, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. I want to begin by asking two basic questions. The first question is, one, do you pray? And the second is, do your prayers work? I know right here we could stop perhaps and spend the rest of our morning on this last question, do your prayers work? And by that I mean, do your prayers make a difference? Because if you don't feel that your prayers, that your prayers are accomplishing anything, then you need to ask yourself, then why am I praying if it makes no difference anyway? If you're a true believer in Christ, then you would say that you have a relationship with God, which is good. But sometimes our relationships get distracted, and we may be praying, but our prayers are not really doing anything. It's just empty talk. It's just shallow. We all need a relationship with God. Today I want to talk about that connection with God and how it works through prayer. Perhaps you're wondering, what do you mean by the word prayer? Prayer is simply when you and God communicate. When you talk to God and God talks to you. Prayer is when you and God are in a relationship. It may not always even be a pleasant relationship. You may be trying to talk to God, get God to do something for you, and it doesn't seem that he's in favor. You're trying to convince yourself why God should allow you to do this. Or you may be wanting to not do something. God is trying to get you to do something. You feel you should do something, but you're praying and trying to find a way not to do something. There are several characters in the Bible we could talk about. One is the character, the Old Testament, Jacob. He wrestled with God in prayer. Actually, it was an angel, but in essence, he was wrestling with God in prayer. Jacob was a deceiver. He was a schemer. He had done some wrong things, and his brother Esau was mad at him. And so when he had fled, and finally, and many years later, when he came back, he was afraid. And the one night, he was alone with God, or with an angel, and he wrestled in prayer. And he refused to let this man go unless he would bless him. And the long and short of the story was that Jacob actually physically was physically injured as a result. The man t touched him in a place where he had to, from then on, walk with a limp. Another character is, is Moses. Moses was in prayer with God as well. One day he was uh, taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. He was uh, shepherding them by the mountain of Sinai. And there he saw a burning bush that wasn't burned up. It was burning but not burned up. And he came close and God spoke to him in a voice out of the bush and said, Moses. And Moses responded. God told him to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And then God got into a discussion with Moses about the Israelites in Egypt. And he told Moses to go back to Egypt and rescue them or bring them out of Egypt. Moses didn't want to. Moses rebelled and had a long talk with God. Why it was a bad idea. And so there was a prayer going on between Moses and God. In the end, God actually got angry at Moses for being so stubborn. But Moses gave in eventually, and he did his job. Another man is the prophet Elijah. He too prayed to God. And on Mount Carmel, there was this contest between the idol Baal and God, which God would answer. And the prophets of Baal, they accepted the contest, and they prayed very hard to their god Baal, but he wouldn't answer by fire. And then Elijah, he simply prayed a simple prayer, acknowledging God, asking God to prove himself, and God did. But later on, Elijah got very depressed because his efforts at bringing revival, his efforts at preaching God's word had proved futile. It seemed it didn't work. And Jezebel threatened to kill him. He got upset, got depressed, and he tried to get God to feel sorry for him. I'm the only one left, he would say. 
Prayers when we're spending time with God it can be pleasant, it can be enjoyable, it can be exciting, and it can be very discouraging, can be very heartbreaking, and so on. Today we want to talk about prayer. We can do it in any place, any time. We can worship God in prayer in a noisy place, in a crowded place, in a chaotic place. We can worship Him in prayer when we're in, in, with people, when we're alone. And prayer is not just talking. It's actually our heart engaging with God, focusing on God. It's, it's more than just saying words. It is deeper than that. We, do it, we can do it anywhere, as I said. We can do it in church. We can do it in people. We can do it outside when we're walking. Um, we have a story in the Bible. Jesus prayed a lot, and he talks about how the Pharisee prayed. The one Pharisee prayed in, in the temple, and he was proud of his prayer. He, he was boasting to God how good he was. He was tithing. He was doing all kinds of good deeds and reminding God how good he was and, and telling God that he wasn't as bad as some of the other guys, the one standing in the back there, the tax collector. And Jesus said, the tax collector in the back, the, sin, the publican, the sinner, he just simply prayed a prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man's prayer was answered. The man walked home righteous. Prayer is a very important part of our lives. We cannot really do without it. In fact, it's so important that to lose that part of our lives is just like losing our ability to breathe, we could say. We cannot be spiritually alive and have a relationship with God outside of prayer. Prayer is a must if we're going to have a relationship with God. And so I want to talk about that this morning. I want to begin by reading out of Luke chapter 11, beginning verse 1. And here Jesus is praying, and he's spending time in prayer. The disciples are observing him, and something very interesting happens. It says in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Now, when, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John does to his disciples. There's a lot of information just in this little short piece of scripture. One writer put it this way, Apparently John the Baptist was not just known as a prophet, the disciples had observed and picked up on. He was also a man of prayer, and he had taught his disciples how to pray, and the disciples of Jesus had observed that. And so the disciples of Jesus now, seeing Jesus pray, are reminded of John the Baptist, how he taught his disciples to pray, and say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I want to mention one thing here, and I hope to pick up on it later, because we may all remember, if you know the Bible, you may remember how John the Baptist ended up. And just because we pray, or because someone prays, does not mean they will not face hardship. It may, well, it may well go worse for us, very easily go worse for us if we pray than if we don't. And prayer can be a very dangerous thing. And also in Psalm chapter 73, we find how the psalmist prayed, reminding God how, or telling God how the ungodly, the, the unbelievers, how, how careless they live, how, how wealthy they live, or how in luxury and ease they live, while he, as a follower of God, is not having a good time at all. So let's begin with verse 2. It says here, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. The statement is not if you pray, it is when you pray. The people prayed, that people prayed was a foregone conclusion in that culture. That's just what Jews did. Jesus is assuming that the disciples are praying men, and so he goes on to tell them how they should pray when they prayed. And Jesus starts out by saying to them, you say, Father. In that day when, when, when people would pray, to say, call God Father was a bit out of the ordinary. And here Jesus is teaching them how to address God. They would have called God maybe Yahweh, um, one of the other names for God. But here Jesus calls God Father. And in fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Our Father, this community. Today we just will pick up on this word, Father. It's a relational prayer. Father means relational. 
One of the names of uh, God in the Old Testament was Yahweh, and some writers are not even sure of uh, the exact pronunciation of that name because how it was spelled. Um, people considered God's name very sacred. They were a bit hesitant or apprehensive in even naming the name God. They didn't want to say it wrong and so on. But here Jesus comes and uses the word Father for God. That's relational. And maybe not everybody has the same uh, feeling or the same uh, reaction when the word Father is used. For people especially who've had a different father, son or father-daughter relationship. But here Jesus is talking about Father as in someone who cares, someone who loves. To understand this properly... The person who wants to learn to pray must have that view of God as a loving, caring father. So first we address God as father. And then we say, hallowed be your name. Just just a question here. Does God need reminding that his name is holy? Is it possible that he could perhaps forget? No. God does not forget who he is. But the reason we say, hallowed be your name, is we need to focus on that. We need reminding. We can forget and we do forget. God knows who he is. He knows what he is. He knows he is love and he's our father. He knows he's holy and we need to remind ourselves that he's holy. We don't say hallowed be your name just in case he might have forgotten. We need to say it because we need to be reminded. So we begin by calling God father. We remind ourselves he's holy. At this point in time, some of you may be thinking, what about my needs? Yes, our needs are valid too and they're important. But that's not the point of reference from which we begin. The point of reference from where we start is God is father. His name is holy, and we pray that his kingdom should come. We pray that his kingdom will come. We can get the point of reference mixed up. I'm reminded of a builder who builds a house. He doesn't just measure from just anywhere on the lot and start putting down the foundation. Usually there's a steel peg somewhere driven into the ground, and that's the point of reference from which the house is built. The measurement comes from that point of reference, and everything goes from there. He doesn't just measure from anywhere from this corner or that corner and then one part of the house is measured from here another part of the house measured from there everything has a reference point i heard a story years ago of how a sea captain was sailing at night and left one of his junior men in charge of the ship and told him to point the ship in a particular direction and to navigate i think it was the north star in a clear black night sky stars were out the sailor promised to do as he was told and the captain went to sleep hours later the captain woke up and went back to the to the, to the bridge to, the, to where the uh, junior seaman was still dutifully holding the ship on course. Captain asked him, uh, are you still sailing toward the star? Oh, said the seaman, we passed that star hours ago. The captain told him, no, you turn the ship around and go back to the star again. That star was a fixed point of reference. And what had happened was this man had simply wandered off course and thought he was actually just passing the star. When really he was just going, getting off course. The point of reference from which we pray can never change. That's the point I want to make. I want to say this carefully, but it's true. I don't know of any human being who at one time or another has not got this wrong. It's easy to make something other than God the point of reference. And when that happens is we make ourselves the point of reference or a situation or a circumstance a point of reference. And sometimes I will dare say it's, even, it's better to, that those prayers do not get answered than that they do because if God would answer those prayers, it would do us harm rather than good. We don't want to mess that up. I want to speak also a little bit about this phrase, your kingdom come. A lot of people will say it, your kingdom come. But really what they want is, Lord, my will be done. We want our will be done. We want our kingdom to come. So we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But really our hearts, we have a will, we have a goal, we have a desire, and we want that to be done. We have a little kingdom we want to protect or a little kingdom we want to build and establish. 
And we may not intentionally think that, but that is in essence what's really going on. A case in point here is the Jewish nation itself. The Jewish people were not a free nation. They were under Roman rule. And the disciples were like ordinary men, hoping for a time when they would again be an independent, free nation, not having to pay taxes to Rome. They could make their own laws. They would have an economic, political, and military free nation. The disciples viewed Jesus as someone who was going to help them achieve that. And if you don't believe this, just read Acts chapter 1, verse 6, where Jesus has already died. He's risen from the dead. He's now been with them again for 40 days. And then they ask him this question, Lord, are you again at this time going to establish the kingdom of Israel? They were still thinking those thoughts. They were still not really comprehending the kingdom of God on earth. It was really a physical, geographical, political kingdom they were thinking about. And Jesus simply says to them, it's not for you to know the times or places that the Father has set, but you go in Jerusalem and he tells them what's, what they're supposed to do. And then a Pentecost comes and then their, their eyes are open to reality. In our day, it seems people are quite comfortable to pray that their favorite political party will win or their favorite political leader will win and that the other, their opponent, the, um, the one they don't like will lose and so on. And that's really not what we're called to pray. We get God wrong when we connect him with political, geographical, or social issues. God is much higher than that. I'm reminded of a story in the Bible that illustrates this very well. Joshua chapter 5.13. The people of Israel have been under Moses' leadership for many years. Moses has, uh, has died. He's, he's buried. Uh, God, took, uh, God buried him. But Moses is gone. And now Joshua is the leader. And his job is now to lead the people of Israel into Canaan, and he leads them across the Jordan River. And then when, when they're across the Jordan River, Joshua has an experience. Let me just read Joshua 5.13 and on. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Joshua very quickly realized he was not in charge. The commander of God's armies was in charge, and he had only one thing to do, surrender himself to God's commander. That last verse, verse 15 that I just read, is the central core of the matter. We are in God's army, we join him in his mission, his cause, and we do so in the presence of his holiness. What really happened here was this. This was in essence a form of God's kingdom come. The man informed Joshua he had not come to give Joshua support for his armies. He was not an adversary nor a foe. He says, I've come to take over. One preacher put it that way, and I think that's the best way it is to say it. I've not come to take sides. I've come to take over. So when we go to prayer, we're not begging God to be on our side, to come and join our cause. When we pray, we come to God. We come before him and surrender ourselves to his cause, to join him, what he's doing. It's not about us. It's about God. And that's what Jesus is getting at. God is our father. He is holy. It's about his kingdom happening on earth. Even Joshua, the man of God, who was um, such a uh, God-fearing man, an upright man, had seen so many miracles. Even he needed to be reminded of this. How much more so do we? Does this then mean that our needs don't count and that God's not interested in meeting our needs? No, God's very interested in meeting our needs. We have to remember we're made in his image. He loves us. He cares enough for us that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, give his life for us on the cross. And he gives us holy life, I mean eternal life. What that is, is we are his property. We're his possession. But we are responsible how we come to him because being part of God's image is we too are able to choose how we want to live. And that's being part of God's image. We have freedom. And so we, we do come to him. We say, give us each day our daily bread, verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. 
Our physical needs are important to him. And they're important. We need to bring them to, to God. It's not like, again, we need to remind God that our fridge is empty, our freezer is empty, our pantry is empty. Could you please fill it for us? God knows that already. But we need to remind ourselves that we go to him with that need, asking him to meet that need because without him we can do nothing. We focus on God and God alone in meeting our needs. Yes, we do go to work, we do have jobs, we do provide in that way, but trusting God, depending on God in all of this. Again, how many of us really pray this prayer right? Or we may say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Then we go about worrying and scheming and planning as if God does not exist. There really is not enough trust in him. It's very hard to depend on God when we not just have our needs met, but when we get distracted and start focusing on things and wants that we really, we really don't need. I'm not saying being wealthy is sin. God has some of, blessed some of his, his children very richly. And there are some very God-fearing rich people, also some very God-fearing poor people. That's not the point. The point is not how rich or how poor. The point is, do we truly depend on God for our needs? Another thing I want to mention is here, and then the next part is verse 4, forgive us our sins, for we, forget, we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Again, why do we need to say this? Does God not know that we need to be forgiven? Why do we ask for forgiveness? Why do we bring it up? If we've already committed to him, we're already in relationship with him, why not just, just leave that out? Again, as I said before, it's not about God. It's about God needing to be reminded. It's about us reminding ourselves before God, telling God, Lord, forgive us our sins because we need this. It's for our sake that we pray this prayer, not for his sake that he needs reminding we want healing from the sins that we've committed. Sin damages people, sin destroys relationships, and we need healing and we need forgiveness. To become free, we must do a few things. And it's hard for many people. We have to, first of all, admit that we're sinners. All of us are sinners. No one is righteous in God's eyes outside of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, all of us are, are righteous in God's eyes, but without Christ, we're not. And yet still, we sin every day with thoughts or acts of omission, commission, whatever it may be. And so we ask, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And the question is not, if we've sinned, forgive us. No, we are sinners by nature. We are, we don't, we're not perfect people. So let's be honest with God and agree with God that we're sinners. We need our sins forgiven. Sometimes it's happened in my life when a person, a person may come to me and, and has a struggle or an issue with someone else, and they really just harp on what somebody's doing to them, and they're not innocent themselves. And I've sometimes asked the question, whose sins bother you more? The sins in your own heart or the sins the other person has done to you? And usually what it is, as long as the sins the other person has done bother us more, that person will never get free. I remember very clearly as a teenager when I first became a follower of Christ, all of a sudden I saw myself as just an ugly mess needing help from God. All of a sudden I just did not care anymore who had done what to me or how badly I had been treated. I just wanted forgiveness. I wanted free from those chains. It was at that time I realized how much I needed forgiveness. And that's the type of heart we must have if we want to be forgiven. I must confess I've not always done this. There's times when I've strayed from this. But this has been my experience. If we refuse to do that, then God's going to deal with us. Some way or other, God will deal with us. And we will not get free. The story of the unmerciful servant is a good illustration. He was forgiven much. He just asked for time, but God was mer the king was merciful and forgave the, uh, the, uh, the servant. He was in so much in debt he couldn't pay. But then the same servant went out and just was very harsh and cruel and brutal to a fellow servant who owed him just a little bit. And so that the king had him thrown in prison. So when we do not forgive, we ourselves will suffer the consequences. 
And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. Again, is there a risk that God could possibly forget and maybe lead us into temptation? That's not what this is talking about. This is not a prayer for God to remind God, okay, make, be careful how you treat me or be careful what you do to me. This prayer is not a prayer that we would need to ask God to keep us out of hard times either. The, the reality is we live in this world. Jesus clearly told us we'll suffer persecution, we'll suffer temptations and trials. But God's not tempting us. James chapter 1 and verse 13 begin, talks about this. He says, God doesn't tempt us. We're tempted when our evil desires take over and we're drawn into sin by our sinful cravings. It is true God will allow trials and struggles in our path, but he's not tempting us to sin. Another way that I would like to word this in today's language would perhaps be, Lord, lead me in a way so I won't sin against you. And sometimes that mentality, that mindset, when I would say, Lord, lead me not into temptation, I'm actually saying, Lord, do whatever it takes to keep me close to you. And sometimes he has to send hard times so I will stay close to him. It's as simple as that. I could say, Lord, make me a millionaire so I won't steal. I could pray that. But then really what I would, might be doing is setting myself up for falling away from God simply because I would follow after money. And so God would not answer that prayer to my own benefit. So let's be careful how we pray. And this is briefly what Jesus is teaching his disciples. But then he emphasizes this whole thing with a parable. And I want to read this parable. In verse 5 he says, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? If you ask for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I know this is a hard passage. That, but that last part, verse 13, I think is the main point. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How we ask is very important. That's the, that's the point here. Jesus is telling his disciples this so they will persist, they will, be, they will persevere, they'll keep on pressing in, they will live a life of prayer. It's an intensity that goes on here. He tells them to seek and they will find. He tells them to knock, they will be opened and so on. To ask and it will be given. God wants good things for his children. But let's, let's now go back to what I said earlier about John the Baptist. Does that mean if we ask right, seek right, knock right, then we will get what we desire well, let's again focus on John the Baptist. He was a man of prayer, taught his disciples to pray, so much so that Jesus' disciples observed it and they said to Jesus, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. Is it safe to say that John also prayed perhaps when he was in prison? Absolutely. John was arrested simply because he spoke the truth. He simply told Herod, it's wrong for you to have your brother's wife. You're living in adultery. It's wrong. That's all he said. It's simple. And it was true. But Herod was angry. Herod threw him in prison. And... In prison, John struggled. And at one point in time, John actually sent someone to talk to Jesus. Are you the Messiah we should wait for or should we wait for somebody else? Jesus had nothing but praise for John the Baptist. And he told the people that John was a great man and the greatest born of man born of women. And it's, we can safely assume John prayed in prison. But that did not keep him out of problem, trouble. In fact, it got worse. John ended up in prison for being a man of God. And then finally, his head was chopped off for doing the right thing. Prison, prayer, suffering, that was John's lot in life. Prayer does not protect us from that. Our body will suffer. Someone might ask, well, what if he had prayed harder? 
What if he had asked more sincerely? What if he had knocked more? Would it have worked? Maybe that would have been the wrong pursuit for John. We cannot say that John didn't pray right, didn't seek right, didn't knock right. John was a man of God more than any man ever was. I just want to make one more comment here in the, about uh, Psalm chapter 73 I talked about earlier. I won't go into this. It's, time is too short. But Psalm 73 talks about how David pours his heart out to God and describes before God how the wicked live. They live in ease, comfort, no threats, no danger, no risk to their lives. And yet, it seems that they get off scot-free, and yet it says he's the one who's trying to do everything right, and he lives in hardship. But then he says he had almost slipped, he had almost fallen. But then he looks at their end, and then he's encouraged again. And that I want to use for us today as well. Too often we tend to focus short-term, temporary, and it's not healthy for us. We need to look at the long-term. Where's John the Baptist today? No doubt he's in heaven rejoicing with Christ for all eternity. John was a man of prayer, taught his disciples to pray so much so that Jesus' disciples observed it and said to Jesus, teach us to pray. And look what John got. We should not tell ourselves that, okay, if we'll live right, if we'll follow Jesus good enough, if we'll knock, if we'll seek, if we'll, if we'll ask, then we will get good things. God may never answer those prayers, and if he doesn't, he has a reason why. Let's say God doesn't answer prayers if we suffer. I'm sure John's prayers were heard. In Revelations, we have a number of passages where it talks about how the prayers of the saints are stored in heaven for good purpose. John's prayers, no doubt, are in among those prayers. God has created you and me not for ourselves. He's created you and me for his glory, for his honor, for his majesty. Yes, he wants us to have joy and peace in life. He wants us to to enjoy fellowshipping and serving him, be in relationship with him, but never in any way that distracts from his glory and brings glory to something else or some other thing. When we come to the point where it's just God and God only, then we've begun to walk the path that we were created to walk. Then we learn to surrender ourselves to God and see ourselves the way he sees us. When we come to God in prayer, the highest, most intense desire of our heart should be to view God as our Father, to see him as holy, to keep his name holy, to desire his kingdom and will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, to trust him with our needs, and to just in repentance, humble ourselves, and to surrender ourselves to him for cleansing of our sins. We don't go to God asking God to join our purpose and our cause. We go, we go to God to join him and let him take over. And that's the connection that God wants with you and with me. When we're so united with Christ and with God that the living Holy Spirit of God breathes in us continually, then we truly are praying. Paul lived this when he wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He says, pray without ceasing. This does not mean being on our knees all day, day and night. It means simply in our heart and mind and our soul, continually be in communication and relationship with God. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Asking God, seeking God, what glorifies you? What will, what will glorify your name? What will help your kingdom on earth? How will this work? Instead of do it my way. I want you to do this for me. It's about me and my desires. May God give all of us a heart of prayer as individuals, as couples, as families, and as a church community. Amen.